Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hi, Molly. Uh, I'm Jane, and I'm 18, and I'm from Wisconsin. And I'm going to a comedy show tomorrow by myself. My boyfriend was planning to go with me, but he couldn't make it, so I decided that I should go anyways by myself. And I want to connect with people there. I want to make friends and go out more and make friends, but these kind of things make me nervous because it's like I don't know what version of myself to use and I come off as really introverted and I would just like to know if you have any advice for this because I'd love to make friends with people and go out. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, emotional alchemy in your pocket. Thank you to Jane for that question. This particular voicemail was one of those that inspired a whole episode. Are your personality masks blocking access to your true self? Jane said it felt like she didn't know which version of herself she should use in a social situation where she was wanting to connect with other people to make friends. I know I can relate a lot to that feeling, and I imagine that many of you listening can as well. If you listened to last week's episode of the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Jay Watts. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend you go back and check it out. It was an amazing conversation, but you don't necessarily need to listen to that episode before listening to this one. But the concept of personality masking came up in my interview with Jay and it impacted me so much that I felt like I needed to dive into this concept more. And then I hear this voicemail from Jane and I knew I had to make this episode. This is going to be one of my deep dive geek out episodes because This is a really deep, complex, and nuanced topic, and I wanted to give you everything I possibly could to help you understand if you are masking your true self and how to better understand the root of this so that you can move into a more genuine and authentic presentation of your true self. And that means we got to dive deep under the hood. There is so much pressure to be someone that you're not. The struggle to be authentic rather than synthetic is real. And I'm not talking about intentionally adapting your behavior in order to do good work 
or extend kindness and respect to another person. I'm not talking about drinking the Kool-Aid and believing the lie of who others think you should be or could be and allow that to dictate who you are. If you aren't careful, especially as someone with a big heart, really sensitive, a person who deeply wants to connect, who has a deep desire to be seen, heard, and valued, this can cause you to suppress who you truly are and give into what are called personality masks. There's a quote by poet E.E. Cummings that says, To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best, night and day, to make you everybody else, means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. On the internet, catfishing means deliberately deceiving. An online user pretends to be someone else to unsuspecting users. But are you catfishing the world through the use of personality masks? When you're acting all the time, you tend to get confused between the character you're playing and your true self. Think about this. When you look at your own reflection in the mirror, what do you see? Recognizing yourself is more than just identifying the face reflection that you see in the mirror. The concept of self is related to a number of ideas that include mind and consciousness which transcends the physical body, which is so compelling that it's difficult to ignore. If I were to ask you where your mind is, you will likely point to your head. Now, if I ask you where yourself is, you might also point to your head. Many people today accept without much thought that their experience of consciousness, mind, and self are all concentrated in their brain. We usually use the words brain and mind interchangeably, but there is a subtle difference between the two. If you've ever heard of the phenomenon of people having OBEs, out-of-body experiences, this is where they report that they have been able to rise above and over their physical body and zoom into different dimensions. Now, even if you've never had an out-of-body experience or an OBE, you've likely experienced milder types of dissociation between your body and mind. Think about the last time you zoned out during a boring conversation or maybe during a class. And when that happens, you might experience a sense that you've somewhat stepped outside of your body, becoming an outside observer of your own experience in that moment. We've all felt that way at one point or another. However, it's not helpful to dismiss our sense of self as this illusion that lives in our heads. We all have inner speech, an inner monologue, that voice talking in your mind. When we read books, 
articles, tweets, social media posts. We hear our own voices speaking the words in our mind. And when we work on a challenging problem, we speak the steps to ourselves in our heads. And as we go through the day, we make comments about the people and situations we encounter that we would probably never say out loud. And this running dialogue inside our head is what many of us constitute as the self. Although our bodies change over time, we experience the self as immutable and immortal, which is why when we look in the mirror, we see someone familiar who we know. Whatever mask you wear, the reflection you see in the mirror should closely resemble the persona that you've adopted. Presenting a certain face to the world is something that most people are familiar with. So for example, when you have a day where you're feeling just a little bit off, but you still smile and say that you're fine when someone asks you. Beneath the mask of sounding positive on the outside, you're keeping your true feelings to yourself. This is something very common that we all do. The different masks people wear throughout the day acts as a social disguise and helps them get through various situations. Masking is a process by which someone changes their natural personality to conform to social pressures, abuse, or harassment. And it can be strongly influenced by environmental factors like our upbringing, rejection, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. Masking can also be described as concealing our emotions by portraying another emotion that is concealing negative emotions with other emotions, either positive or negative. Masking is to behave in certain ways that would help you hide or repress your emotions that are not approved by other people around you. So in a nutshell, masking or personality masking is protecting yourself from the feeling of the true emotion that you're feeling. I'm going to read a few statements, explore a few scenarios, and while I'm reading these, I want you to ask yourself, If this sounds like you, does this resonate? Do people refer to you as a space cadet or a daydreamer, even though these terms might make no sense to you? Do you appreciate unusual things like constellations and popcorn ceiling, tricks of light, numbers and textures? Do people jokingly call you OCD for your organizational strategies or list making, even though there are perfectly rational reasons for your behavior? Does this obsessive behavior bring you a sense of calm and order? Do people assume you're angry at them, even though you're not? Do you smile or laugh inappropriately, upsetting others? Have people told you that you have a resting bitch face? When you get happy and excited, do people say you're too much or tell you to calm down? 
Are you unusually animated when you're genuinely excited? But you find it hard to fake this enthusiasm on demand for others? Have you ever been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder? Do your anxiety levels spike when there's a change of plans or when someone calls, rings a doorbell, or sends you an email or text? Do you have social anxiety, but only because you have a pretty strong track record of rejection due to missed social cues, difficulty navigating conversations, and an inability to understand what other people are thinking? Is keeping and maintaining relationships difficult for you? even when you're loyal to them? Do you suddenly remember a good friend or relative that you literally forgot about for months or even years? Is it hard to initiate conversations without a prompt sometimes, even with your friends? Do even the easiest tasks sometimes seem insurmountable because you can't fathom completing the steps to get them done? Do emotions and sensory overload build up into what feels like a thunderstorm of rage, panic, or despair that you have no choice but to just ride out until it passes? What might feel like a meltdown? Or does this buildup result in you retreating from the world and zoning out like a shutdown? Or do you alternate between melting down and shutting down? Do you feel like you have a built-in bullshit detector and hate playing along with things that infantilize you? Have you people ever said that you're not a team player for complaining about pointless gift exchanges or parties? Do you feel the need to understand the deeper purpose of tasks that you're asked to do at work? Do you hate the idea of making small talk or conversation with people who share nothing in common with you? Do you have a hard time modulating the level of your voice and sometimes speak with inappropriate volume for the situation? Do you feel so closely connected to your hobbies that you can blissfully engage in them for hours and have a hard time stopping for anything else? And when you lose interest in these hobbies or passions, does it make you feel like you've lost a part of who you are? Do you sometimes feel like you relate to animals more than you do people? As a child, did you secretly suspect that you are from another planet or species than your other classmates? When meeting someone similar to you, do you feel like you're home so to speak. Do gender or romantic or sexuality norms just seem arbitrary and fake to you? Do labels and categories that people try to shove you in in general, regardless of how you identify sexually or from a gender perspective, does all of it just seem silly to you? Do you resist being put in those boxes? Do you get emotional and feel seen? As I'm reading all of these statements to you, there might be a reason for that. Masking can be a behavior 
that individuals adopt subconsciously as a coping mechanism or trauma response, or it can be a conscious behavior where an individual adopts personality masking to fit in within perceived societal norms. Masking is interconnected with maintaining performative behavior within social structures and cultures. Personality masks might help you fit in or to hide in plain sight, but they can be exhausting and cause undue stress in people who use them regularly, especially if they're being used subconsciously or outside of your conscious awareness. A personality mask allows the people who wear them to hide their real self from others. Personality masks are often a self-defense mechanism. They help protect you from hurt due to societal rejection, abusers, or bullies. Masking your personality means that you take steps to cover up who you really are around other people in social, work, or personal interactions. You can mask your personality with words, facial expressions, body language, actions, and personality masking may occur as a response to societal pressures, bullying, abuse, or fear. So why do people mask their personalities. It's incredibly common for people to wear masks to help them fit into society. According to a 2017 qualitative study, those who are neurodivergent tend to engage in more social camouflaging. Both neurodivergent and neurotypical people may develop personality masks in response to bullying or abuse. They may find that masking their thoughts or feelings helps prevent further abuse or bullying. And this type of masking involves attempting to replicate what others around them are doing for work, school, socially, and also to find love interests or connect with other people. But no matter the direct cause or motivation, personality masking typically helps protect your true self from further emotional harm and lower self-esteem. After all, people can't reject you for who you truly are if they never knew you in the first place. It can lead to exhaustion since it takes so much extra energy to hide your true self. You might experience depression suicidal ideation, feelings of loneliness, or have a permanently aroused or anxious nervous system out of fear that someone might find out who you truly are. Other reasons why people may mask their emotions are to gain social acceptance, to be liked, to hide excitement, to hide happiness, to hide vulnerability, truth, fear, anger, sadness, depression, pain, 
to deceive or to manipulate. The term masking has historically been associated with autism and ADHD. However, now it's used by people living with all different kinds of neurodiversity. As you all know, here on this podcast, I try not to get too deep into labels and diagnoses and see people as unique, unfolding, and becoming human beings, and I encourage my listeners to, instead of labeling their feelings, thoughts, reactions, defense mechanisms as symptoms of an illness or disorder, I encourage you to think of your symptoms as saviors, as ways that your body, mind, and spirit communicate with you to alert you that you're living out of integrity with your true self. Many people who have been given diagnosis of ADHD tend to feel the need or desire to fidget as a means to control a hyperactivity that's happening in their brain. So for a lot of history, people with ADHD labels were yelled at or shamed about these types of coping skills like the use of fidget spinners or things that help them stay focused and put their energy somewhere. And a lot of autism treatment includes social skills training. Rather than educating the public about what it means to be neurodiverse and friends with people that have all different types of functioning, we've trained neurodiverse people to normalize or mask their behaviors to fit into these tight, restrictive societal boxes and cages. So, is masking good or bad? It's complicated. Masking can be tiring. It takes a lot of energy to suppress such a big part of your life. It can feel like you aren't being your true self, and it might come with feelings of fear or shame. But sometimes masking is necessary to keep you safe or to help you maintain relationships. Masking can protect you from people who don't understand your coping mechanisms, emotions, reactions, and might respond negatively to them. It can help you hold down a job, navigate social situations, and connect with other people. We are constantly negotiating how to take care of ourselves and be true to ourselves while also being in a relationship with other people. How do you tell if you're masking? It isn't easy to discern whether or not you're wearing a personality mask. While you might think that you know who you are, it's quite possible that you're so familiar with your masks that you are hiding even from yourself. Experiencing feelings like restlessness, feelings of insincerity, job dissatisfaction, or emotional and physical exhaustion and burnout can point to a frequent use of personality masks. Low self-esteem, self-doubt, and not liking who you see in the mirror are also 
usually signal a mask. One of the strongest indicators of a personality mask is a sense of an inner conflict or split, feeling like you are being pulled in two directions at once. So what does masking actually look like in practice? Let's say your family was really involved at church growing up and the Sunday school teachers talked mostly about little girls who were soft, gentle, meek, and mild. Four words, by the way, which may have never described you. What type of mask then would you be tempted to wear? You would Maybe think that in order to get into heaven or to be seen as a good girl, you needed to be soft, gentle, meek, and mild, even if those didn't feel like expressions of your true nature. So you would take on those masks. Or maybe you went to grad school where your professors favored the highly academic students who were able to easily fall into serious discussions about theoretical perspectives and not much else, what type of mask would you be tempted to wear then? Or maybe you have a job in high-powered corporate America, working at a law firm that praises and promotes assertive partners with over-the-top ambition more often than any other type of person. What type of mask would you be tempted to wear in this environment? As you can see, the situations, systems, and power structures we find ourselves in force us to adopt traits and behaviors and responses that may not be aligned with our true nature. I found this incredible blog on a website called Walkie Talkie Speech Therapy. And the woman who wrote this blog gave an example of personality masking in a cultural context that I wanted to read to you. I thought it was a really beautiful example. She writes, When I was in college, I studied abroad in a small town in France for four months. I was very excited. I'd studied the French language for six years, read books on Paris, and watched French movies. But when I got to France, I noticed something extraordinary. As a naturally friendly and curious person, I enjoy making eye contact with strangers, saying hi and smiling. When I tried to do this in France, I quickly discovered that it was hard making eye contact with strangers. When I happened to lock eyes with a stranger, I was met with a strange look or a frown. I was confused and began to feel extremely out of place. Was I doing something wrong? Were French people rude and unfriendly? What I had unwittingly discovered was that French people view eye contact as a matter of personal space. My making eye contact with strangers is seen as very rude. And those strangers had been trying to non-verbally tell me all of that through their frowns and scrunched up faces. Even though France is a Western culture often seen as not too different from the U.S., I learned that to be successful in French culture, I needed to change the way I communicated, interacted with others, and essentially led my daily life. What I started to do in France was mask. I stopped looking and smiling at strangers. I accepted bisous, i.e. kisses on the cheek, 
from those I was introduced to, even when it made me feel uncomfortable. I learned to say bonjour every time I entered a shop because not doing so would be taken with offense. It felt like every interaction I had was an interaction I was analyzing and structuring to make me seem more French and not so strange and American. I had to wear a metaphorical French mask. After four months in France, I was emotionally exhausted. I couldn't wait to come home to the United States where I could be myself, and I didn't have to follow the silly rules of French culture that were so constant and draining to me personally. Now, imagine being expected to adapt to the strange, secret rules of a foreign country. However, there is no home to go home to where you can take off that mask. For the neurodiverse people in the world, every day might feel like my time in France, except there is no escape or respite where they can find comfort in not having to mask. This example resonated with me very deeply. As longtime listeners know, I spent a bit of time living in London, and when I was there, one example I can think of is when I would go to a restaurant and I would be asked what I wanted to drink and nine times out of ten because I was broke ass and college student then, I would just say I'd want water. And I cannot tell you the amount of times that the English wait staff person would say, water, are you American? And like they would just so overtly make fun of the way that I say water or if I had to say the word tomato and they tomato and of course in the UK they would say water or tomato right and so after a while it was funny at first but after a while I got so tired of knowing exactly how my accent would be made fun of, or I'd be asked just all these questions that I would just say, can I have water? If I was tired, I would sometimes just try my best at some kind of jacked up English accent just so that I could not have to deal with the being made fun of aspect gives you a lot of compassion for anyone who is living in a foreign country and just trying to get by and having to deal with comments about their appearance or their customs or their accent. And that made me really take notice of that. This is why I think it's great for anyone, especially Americans, to go live in other countries. I don't think it happens quite enough. Other types of masking behaviors are copying a person's tone of voice or body language, just like I did in the UK, putting on my my literal fake English accent to say water so that I didn't have to get made fun of. That is like the most epic definition of masking. Other examples are providing an expected answer to a question instead of what you might actually feel, engaging in small talk, and feeling like it's forced or forcing or faking eye contact, smiling and laughing, even if you are unsure of why you're doing it or it doesn't feel genuine, 
pretending to understand and follow a conversation when you may not actually understand or follow, hiding or talking less about things that you're very interested in, rehearsing responses to questions or scripting out conversations before you have them, forcing yourself through uncomfortable sensory discomfort. So there are all different kinds of masks that we wear. Let's talk about the different kinds. One kind of mask or archetype is the martyr or victim mask. The martyr or victim mask doesn't accept blame to protect their self-esteem. So instead, if you or a loved one uses this mask, you might blame things in the outside world for your own problems as failures as a way to protect your self-esteem. Another mask is the bully mask. If someone feels self-doubt or they've been abused, they may turn to bullying as a way to keep people away. And this might take the form of acting out physically, making fun of other people or coercing others to accept their opinion to overcompensate for their poor self-esteem. Another mask that I'm very familiar with is the humor mask. So if you're wearing the humor mask, you might use humor to prevent getting laughed at by others or to hide feelings of inner sadness. Because after all, no one can laugh at you if you're already laughing at yourself. And others won't know how you really feel if you hide your pain with attempts at humor. It makes me think of some of the most famous comedians in the world, how often you find out that they are deeply, deeply sad and depressed. They use humor as a self-deprecating way of acting this kind of mask out and turning it almost into a career. Another mask is the calm mask. Some people wear this calm mask in nearly every situation. If this is you, you might bottle up your emotional responses and show only a calm, peaceful, even composure. And when this happens, your emotions have nowhere to go. Someone wearing a calm mask might eventually explode or become emotionally dysregulated completely out of the blue. And to the people around them, it might not make much sense, but to the person and knowing their inner landscape and what they've been bottling up, it makes perfect and logical sense. Another mask that I'm very familiar with myself, the overachieving mask. If you wear the overachieving mask, you might strive for perfection, even though all of us know that perfect does not exist but it sure as hell does not stop us from trying and wearing the shit out of this mask. Anyone using the overachieving mask might hope to gain acceptance and praise for doing things perfectly. So in this case, self-esteem relies too heavily on being perfect, which means you might internalize any mistake that you make. And this need for perfection is sure to cause a near constant state of anxiety and emotional dysregulation. 
The next mask type in our mask parade here that I also relate very much to is the self-bashing mask. Do you talk down on yourself? Is your inner critic raging at all times? Even if you do this in a joking way and put yourself down with somewhat of the self-bashing humor mask, like some kind of mix, which I do all the time, this is a defense mechanism meant to shield you from being made fun of or hurt. Self-bashing or bringing yourself down can also be a defensive method against low self-esteem. It might be used as a protective mechanism, as a way to put yourself down before someone else does. Another mask type is the avoidant mask. The avoidant mask involves withdrawing into yourself for fear of rejection and judgment of your mistakes. You might avoid saying too much to others or being around others and withdrawing can cause you to become socially isolated. Another mask is the controlling mask. Someone wearing the controlling mask would strive for a different kind of perfection. If you're using this mask, you'll try to control everything and everyone around you so that you can achieve a sense of security. If you're wearing this mask, you might plan out every detail of an outing, demand that your plans get used and keep a very neat and tidy space. You might have high expectations of the people that you're in relationships with, freak out if they don't text you back or say the right thing. This is very common and it is very destructive to our intimate relationships. My controlling and perfectionistic masks that I have been wearing much of my life have been part of the reason why I have been unable to feel any kind of satisfaction with romantic relationships, jobs, places that I've lived, things that I own, myself, anything. It's this unreachable expectation that I put upon myself and other people, places, and things that contributes to a profound disconnection. Another mask that you may be familiar with is the people-pleasing mask. If you tend to wear a people-pleasing mask, your self-esteem depends on the acceptance of others. You might go out of your way to make sure other people around you are happy, and making other people happy gives you a sense of self-worth. You may live with extra anxiety related to making sure you're making others around you happy. This is another mask I'm very familiar with. It's interesting because I read that people-pleasing behaviors are actually often a covert way of controlling other people and the world around us. We feel like we need to jump through hoops and put ourselves last so that we can somehow win the, the approval and love of other people. And that somehow if we were to just be ourselves without jumping through all of these hoops, we wouldn't be worthy of love and acceptance. And if that is you, I encourage you to know that this is not the way life has to be. Another mask is the socializer mask. 
If you wear the socializer mask, you will use your ability to talk with anyone to mask your insecurity. And though you may have many acquaintances, you may not have many meaningful friends because you keep conversations from going too deep. The conformist mask would mean that you seek to follow what everyone else around you is doing. You're desperate for acceptance, and so you'll follow cues from other people in social groups that you want to belong to. I shoved myself into the conformist mask for much of my adolescent life and all of my 20s, so much so that I completely lost who I was. Let's explore the negative consequences of personality masking, especially the kind that we're not aware that we're doing, which is much of we've just discussed. Personality masking as a self-defense or coping mechanism. Just because a coping strategy was once useful doesn't mean it always will be. Remember that we develop personality masks as a way to survive and adapt to an environment that we perceive will not accept us for who we truly are. It's important not to demonize personality masking or see it through the lens of shame or guilt or wanting to eradicate it. Allow self-compassion to arise within yourself for the version of you that felt like you had to wear these masks. Studies are now beginning to find how detrimental to our mental health masking can be. For example, autistic people who mask more show signs of anxiety and depression, and the strategy has even been linked to an increase in suicidal behaviors. And there are several reasons why this could be. Firstly, masking uses up vital resources that we can't use in other areas of our lives. So to put it simply, masking who you really are is exhausting. For example, many autistic people experience something called autistic burnout, where they experience periods of mental health crisis from the strain of trying to adapt themselves to live in a world that just isn't adjusted for their way of thinking. And I think that this is very common for anyone on the neurodiversity spectrum, which I think is most of us who feel like we are highly sensitive, deep feeling, existential thinking type of humans. Masking also stops us developing our true identities. The pressure to fit in means that we rarely have time or energy to do the things that we want to do or to behave like our true selves. In my late 20s, In early 30s, just in the pocket of my life that I really started focusing on uncovering my true self and starting this podcast, I realized how little I knew about my true self. And as I went deeper and deeper into what felt like a dark night of the soul for me, I realized that I had no idea who I was or even what I was passionate about anymore. Everything I knew was in some way connected to 
who I thought I should be or the person I thought I needed to perform to the world to be loved, liked, and accepted. A study that I ran across actually found that masking didn't change the judgments that non-autistic people made towards autistic people's social behavior. So even when an autistic person was masking, the non-autistic people still rate these people more harshly than their non-autistic peers, even if they don't know they're autistic. This unconscious bias is evident throughout society for anyone deemed to behave or think atypically by societal standards. This made me feel better because if you really think about it, people can sniff out when you're not being authentic. Think about it yourself. You know the last time you were around someone who you could tell they were laughing but they didn't really think it was funny or they were uncomfortable making eye contact with you. It's easy to sniff this stuff out. So once you start recognizing that you're masking, it can be incredibly freeing realization and to realize that it's best to do what you can to start unmasking yourself and digging into your true inner nature, even if that might not fit societal standards. Because think about it. Some of the people that I admire most are people who are unabashedly who they are. Even if they were off the wall, not typical of society's standards. I think about Basquiat, the artist, or Frida Kahlo, someone who completely said, fuck societal standards, I'm going to be who I am, I am a creative, I am an artist, and I am going to embrace my weirdness of what society perceives as weird. It's very freeing to realize Screw what people think. So how do you begin to unmask yourself? The first step towards authenticity, if you suspect that you might be wearing a personality mask instead of a social behavioral mask, is to evaluate your behavior to see if your actions are in stark conflict with how you're feeling inside. Next, Determine the type of mask that you might be wearing most of the time to bring it into your conscious awareness. That's the first step. So if you're listening to this episode and you've identified things that I've shared and stated and you've said, ah, that's me. I didn't even realize I've been doing this. And you're having those like aha moments, fireworks. Oh my God. That's amazing. That is what it feels like when something starts coming into your conscious awareness. Once you're conscious of something, you can catch yourself doing it. But the key is not to beat yourself up about it, just to be aware and to recognize that this is something that you began doing as a protective measure. It's a sign that you're actually a very adaptive person your body mind personality and everything is working exactly as it should you develop these coping strategies to protect yourself the goal is to make sure that your mask is not in conflict with the real you and one of the first steps you can take to determine what causes you to wear a mask around others you may be able to use this new self-awareness to start 
dropping your mask and discovering your true self. And as you start to do this, you might see that others start to become closer to you, but you should also be prepared for rejection. Change isn't always easy, and the reality is is that not everyone will like you for who you are. But this is okay. You don't need everyone to like you. Eventually, you'll find the people who truly like you, not the mask that you're wearing. You deserve to find those people. And if you need to be alone for a little while, to unmask and to let those people find you and seek them out, you deserve that. Next, find your space to release There may be certain people who you feel safe to unmask around or physical places where you can really just let it all hang out and be yourself. Anchor yourself with those people and in those places and retreat and take a break there when you need it. You can also begin to unmask by getting to know who you really are by identifying your values. I've spoken about this before on the podcast. Those of us who tend to mask have felt like we've had to spend our whole lives trying to fit into a specific societal mold. And it can be easy to lose touch with who you really are or what's really important to you. I found this document by an autistic life coach named Heather R. Morgan. She created a diagram to help show the process that she walks clients through to help them identify what their values are. And in this diagram, she writes, when we've masked for years or decades, we often need a compassionate guide to help walk us through the process so that we can give ourselves the permission we need to get to true honesty with ourselves. Find your way. There are hundreds of values out there and a thousand messages a day trying to tell you what should matter to you. So how do you help hear your own values in the midst of all of this chaos? This process will help. Now, if you can pause the podcast now and you would like to get some kind of pen and paper to do this exercise, I encourage you to do that. Or if you just want to think about it in your mind, I'm going to go through this a little bit slowly so that you can experience this process and feel free to pause the podcast here at minute 50 and come back to it when you want to do the exercise later. So maybe you just want to listen to this now, come back later and listen to the podcast slowed down, which you can do on most podcast apps and walk yourself through this exercise. But for now, let's walk through what Heather encourages us to do to identify our values, which is key to recovery period and especially key if you feel like you are masking the crap out of your personality. So here goes. Think of five moments in your life when you felt like you were fully alive. Try to find moments in your mind's eye from childhood, adolescence, adulthood, school, work, vacations, and hobbies. Some of these moments might leave you with a sense of awe and wonder 
you might have thought in these moments, wow, if all of life was like that, life would be amazing. Think of moments that leave you feeling deeply recharged and ready to face the next challenge. These moments would have likely left you feeling satisfied or fulfilled. I want you to take a moment to right now just think of one of those examples. Think of a moment in childhood, adolescence, adulthood, schoolwork, vacations or hobbies where you felt fully alive. You felt deeply recharged. You felt like this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is how I'm meant to feel. Next, I'm going to give you a second to imagine this experience once you have it in your mind's eye. Imagine it in as much detail as you possibly can. Try to think specifically about why this moment stuck with you so dramatically. Tell the story of the event with as many details as possible. Write it down, go through it in your mind, record a voice note. I'm going to give you a moment here and you can either pause the podcast or just take the break that I give you to think about this moment in as much detail as possible and why it stuck with you so much. Why do you think it left you feeling so satisfied, fully alive, and deeply recharged? (laughs) So once you've finished really experiencing this moment in detail, did any key words pop up? Most of these moments will have two or three key words that really stand out to you. How do these words feel to you? Do all of them feel important? Write down some of these words. You might hear things like spending time with people you love, getting outside, communing with nature. Advocating for less privileged people, helping others, deep connection, learning, wonder. I encourage you to sit down with this exercise because you will start to uncover what holds true meaning for you, guided by your own intuitive innermost voice your higher self, those moments where you felt recharged, revitalized, valued, loved, awe, and wonder, those are true only to you. No masks, nothing fake, just inner truth for you. And I encourage you to Go through this exercise as many times as you need to to remember as many of those moments It's harder to remember these moments sometimes than all the terrible, uncomfortable, suffering moments, but it is imperative that you sit down and try to find these moments of awe and wonder so that you can identify what really matters to you. 
identifying your true values, where you feel like your North Star is, is key to unmasking. Know and embrace your masks. Now, when a mask has been in place for a long time, you can forget that you're wearing it. Your masks have protected you in the past, so it's important that you release them with love. It's important that you are realistic. Dropping disguises all at once is way too drastic. Some of your masks might still serve you on occasion. Just make sure that if you choose a particular mask or disguise, that you're not just going back to your old habits. If you've lived in your mask, your close friends or people that you interact with on a daily basis might not appreciate your authentic self. Don't let that stop you from making the change. Be candid about your changes and surround yourself with people who love you for who you are and remember that it takes time to let your authentic self shine. When it comes to masking, there's no right or wrong answer. Everyone learns to manage their mental health and their emotional well-being in different ways and everyone's circumstances are unique. Just like you shouldn't feel ashamed of your feelings, thoughts, and behaviors, there's no shame in doing what you need to do to survive. And when you wear a personality mask, you are depriving the world from your authentic self. While each person's mask might be unique to the nature of their interactions, the desire to live authentically without harsh judgments is a universal human desire. Realize that even the most confident people wear masks from time to time because it's human nature to want to be accepted. Give yourself credit for wearing behavioral masks during certain social interactions. Accepting who you are by your own self might be harder than others accepting you, this is a lifelong journey and you will have a much better chance of getting ahead in life, finding your own North Star if you embrace yourself, all parts of you, all of your masks with self-compassion. More often than not, too many people overvalue what they are not and undervalue what they really are. And that's a sad reality. Once you've identified your authentic self, immerse yourself in the beauty of representing who you really are underneath your masks. Remember that it's totally normal to want to conform, especially during our early years as young people, students, young professionals where certain social behavioral masks might appear too many it's just like there feels like there's so many things as a student and your first jobs it feels like there's so many different masks you have to wear when you're young and growing up that it is so overwhelming and it's likely this is why so many young people experience really really serious mental health crises but as we grow and mature 
we tend to earn the respect of the people in our lives where it might be more comfortable to wear less masks. I know that's certainly the case for myself as I am entering my 30s. When you commit yourself to this type of understanding, you'll be more likely to love and embrace who you really are instead of putting on a fake personality underneath the mask that's just not even really you in the first place. I want to finish this off by reading a small snippet taken from a Medium article written by a neurodiverse blogger named JL. And this part of her blog is titled, And Once You Strip It All Away, What Do You Replace It With? Jay writes, We mask because we weren't given an alternative way of being as children, and fitting in meant conforming rather than being ourselves. Realizing that I could give myself permission to stop trying to be like everyone else was a revelation. I did a lot of soul searching and embraced that I was just wired differently than other people. I felt like it was the first time I was able to see myself clearly, as though all previous attempts had been made while looking through frosted glass. I did have a few therapy sessions to guide me through what was essentially a process of rebuilding myself on my own terms. My psychologist made me complete exercises where I had to identify what I considered to be my unique strengths. It was excruciatingly difficult, but it worked. You don't need a psychologist to figure out who you are, but you do need to give yourself the space to prioritize finding out. Regular periods of solitude, reflection, and journaling can help you tune in. This is the time you should be unashamedly stepping up to the self-care steps, so you've got the mental energy to devote to it along with managing the usual things that make up your life. It's an investment in yourself. At the risk of sounding cringingly self-indulgent, the best way to describe this process is that you enter an intimate relationship with yourself. It's like getting to know a fascinating new person, but it's you. The transformation that happens on an inner level is mind-blowing. Learning who you are sounds so obvious, but it's a step that many people miss out on. I might look grown up with all the outward signs of adulthood, but I feel like I had the most protracted adolescence ever because I've never really known who I was. Instead of feeling like I've fallen short in some way, I've shifted my perspective and focus to my strengths and the best way of utilizing them. It's empowered me to work out where my boundaries lie and to put strategies in place to honor my boundaries. I don't think I'll ever be rid of masking entirely as long as I have to function in the world, but I think I've thrown off the stranglehold that masking had on my identity and relegated it to something I can put on and take off for specific occasions when I choose consciously. It's frustrating that masking is so easily built into my psyche, but unmasking is unlearning trauma responses and unlearning the negative consequences of being myself as truths. I have to remind myself that I deserve accommodations. I have to remind myself that the core of who I am isn't the problem. The worst part 
is that while I try to unmask, I still experience negative consequences for not masking. And I'm not saying that being completely unmasked 100% of the time is possible, safe, or even the goal. The goal is to be able to recognize when I'm doing it and being able to choose whether to continue or not. Because that's the society we live in. Not everyone has the privilege to navigate society as an unmasked person, especially the most vulnerable among us who may have to mask out of necessity and protecting themselves from danger. I hope this exploration of masking has been helpful for you. I encourage you to reflect this week on what types of masks you wear on when you wear these masks. I encourage you to think about who you are underneath. And if that idea scares you and you don't know who you are without all of your masks, that's okay too. Remember that this is a process of unfolding and becoming. And many of us feel as we grow and get older it is a process of really finding out who we truly are there's nothing wrong with you if you feel like you mask it's very very common and it's actually adaptive and normal to do it's part of being in the society but as jl this writer so beautifully put The key is to be conscious and choose when you do it and to no longer have it be some kind of trauma response that you feel like takes over where your true self is stifled, like snuffing out a candle of your true glowing inner nature. So thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, and you think it could benefit someone you know or love, I encourage you to share it. If you would like to be notified every time I drop an episode each Tuesday, follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Feel free to rate and review the podcast and share your thoughts. If you'd like to send me a voicemail, you can do that at backfromtheborderline.com. Write me an email. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, don't forget to follow the Instagram page for the pod at Back From The Borderline. I share lots of fun memes and quotes, and the community is pretty amazing there. And as usual, I'm going to end this episode with a short preview of my second private podcast that is reserved for my premium subscribers on Acast Plus and Patreon called My Stupid Walk for my stupid mental health. The clip will play for a bit and then it will fade out. And if you would like to hear the rest of the episode, you can consider joining as a premium submarine, which is what I call my premium subscribers. My premium subscribers get four episodes of my stupid walk for my stupid mental health a month. They also get the monthly sonar system mailer which is a newsletter that i send out every month with really cool resources the books i'm reading the things i'm listening to that inspire me 
So if you'd like to become a premium submarine and unlock all this fun stuff, you can do that by clicking the link in the episode description. But for now, I will give you a preview of this week's stupid walk for my stupid mental health. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to my stupid walk for my stupid mental health. I have really exciting news. My walking path that I am usually on, it's been closed down for the last few weeks, as many of you know, because there was a huge freeze here. And so a bunch of trees had fallen and collapsed and made the path pretty much unwalkable. But thankfully, some lovely Samaritans have cleared out the path so that I can walk again. And that means that we don't have any more car noises and we just have beautiful woods ambience again, which is just very nice. I thought we'd start this walk with a quote that I read in one of the books that I'm reading right now called The Law of Light. And it's by a Danish author named Lars Mule, who I have really fallen in love with his work lately. And he is a spiritual writer just a beautiful human being. He has a really cool story. He was actually a famous musician in Europe in the 60s. And then he had what he describes as his spiritual awakening in the late 60s and kind of dropped his record label and went and lived in like an isolated cabin and kind of became like a bit of a hermit. And now he is a prolific spiritual writer and just a really inspirational person to listen to speak. And I will include a link to his YouTube channel in the episode description. So just in case you want to listen to him, you can. I find him to be so incredibly soothing. He is spiritual and not so much religious. He is deeply involved in researching some really cool esoteric wisdom. He speaks Aramaic, which is an ancient language, and he has translated the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found. I can't remember where these things were found, but really cool esoteric wisdom. He's incredibly intelligent, has done a lot of studying of all different spiritual practices, and I believe he's just such a grounded, lovely human being. So I'm going to start by reading this quote And you will appreciate this. Right now, I'm sitting underneath my favorite tree on my walking path, which is just this beautiful tree. And I've got Cody with me. And um, I wrote this quote down on a piece of actual paper, which is just, I love it. So I'm going to read you this quote from the book. And then we're going to talk a little bit about it. So the quote says, The Sufi mystics describe a human being who is midway through life as a full cup that needs to be emptied. According to their viewpoint, the Sufi mystics, a human being enters an incarnation as a cup full of the purest and most beautiful wisdom. Very quickly though, this is replaced by noise and lessons. Until halfway through life, we come to realize that the lessons have become lies and the noise is unendurable. Then it's time to empty the cup. I love this quote so much because it speaks to how we are born perfect, 
we are born a clean slate. How many of us have thought, you know, what would I have been if I wasn't raised in the environment that I was raised in? What, who would I be without my pain, without my trauma? I think when many of us get a certain way into our recovery journey, if you're anything like me, you start to realize that a lot of the things you do, the ways that you react are actually not even you. They are programs that have been downloaded by society, by your family, and those have been downloaded into them by their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents. It gets pretty deep when you think about it. And this is why a lot of people, I believe, when they start to embark upon their own spiritual journey and figure out what that means to them, when you kind of sit down and have to grapple with these big questions or these big realizations, rather, the realization where you kind of look at yourself in the mirror and think, who the fuck am I really without this pain without all of these copy and paste reactions, without who I think I am, my identity, my clothes, my beliefs, what is left? Well, what's left is what you were born as, which is pure awareness, pure love. And the only reason that that's not the case anymore is because of what this quote says is that as we become older, our cup fills more and more up with nonsense, with beliefs, with anger, with with illusion. Because the purest truth is that you really are pure love and pure awareness. And there's nothing else that's, that's true besides that. Everything else is an illusion and the cup is getting more and more full. And what I love about this quote is he says that soon this cup that you are, it's replaced by noise and lessons until halfway through life we come to realize that the lessons have become lies and the noise is unendurable and it's time to empty the cup. The only thing that I think isn't as relatable to some of us here is that some of us aren't through midlife, right? The Sufi mystics say that this happens at midlife. But I would argue that If you're like so many of us who feel like you've already lived a million lives in this one body, I feel so much like I've lived a million times already. I've moved so much. I've experienced so much. My body, my mind has been through so much. I already feel like this full cup. There is an airplane flying above me. So if you hear that, that's what it is. I already feel like this full cup. I feel like I need to empty my cup and I feel like that's what I've been doing on my recovery journey. And I encourage you to think about that as well. Instead of thinking about all the stuff you need to fix about yourself, 
seeing all uh, all of the things that you do as something wrong that you need to change because as I've mentioned before it's so easy for our journeys towards healing to become this way that we beat ourselves up and it's almost like another thing that we use it's almost become workaholics about our recovery at least I do nothing's ever good enough I I'm so hard on myself but when I read this quote and I started thinking what if I thought about my recovery journey as an emptying of this cup that Lars and the Sufi mystics describe? All right, everyone, that is it for this week's preview of my stupid walk for my stupid mental health. As I mentioned before the snippet played, you can unlock the rest of this episode, which is going to be stupid walk number nine. If you become a member on Patreon or Acast Plus, so to do that, you can go ahead and click the link in the episode description. If not, that's okay too. I love you just the same. I hope that you have enjoyed today's episode and I can't wait to see you right back here next Tuesday. Have an amazing week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.